<laughs> yeah, you no. <laughs> Don't knew we'd lose something. What's that? Hour to an hour and a half. So that depends upon the group. You'll have to look at the groups we have. <laughs> Four hours or something. <laughs> now it, it really is established to be an hour and a half. And there's two different formats that and people can choose how they want to do it, to be quite honest with you. Um the group leaders, the facilitators, if they want to try and do it in an hour, I don't know that that's very realistic. Um, but it, it could be done if you, people wanted to do more of the workbook work at home and spend more time in other conversations, reflection and such. So, um, no, everything is everything is provided. You paid for it with that eight bucks. <laughs> No, not, not, not that deep as far as that type of... So Genesis, if you're not familiar with not the book of Genesis in the Bible, but the Genesis process is, is kind of a self-discovery, understanding why we do what we do and processing that stuff. It's not that. This is more reframing our lives in light of the gospel. How do we live the other six days if we go to church, in this case, on Saturdays, and we do the religious thing on Saturdays? What do we do with the other six days? So, yeah. You stay home. Six o'clock. So I, I hope that people can make it um, on Friday. It's, it, it really is pretty meaningful, thought-provoking stuff. And it certainly is something that the Western church struggles with greatly is to figure out what we should do, how we should order our lives in light of what God has done in our, in our lives. Wow, a lot, of, a lot of little ones tonight. That's pretty awesome. I got to turn me down just a little bit because I think I'm gonna be too loud. All right, is that better? Or is that too? That's too quiet. Isn't it? Is that good? All right, kind of a loud mouth. Yeah, that is good. Okay. All right. Is are there any other announcements? <laughs> they almost had him. <laughs> All right. Happy Father's Day, almost. Yeah. Oh, okay. Leanne has. So uh, how did Steve, oh, Steve is busy doing something back there, but he somehow said, I don't remember how you put it, happy All Father's Day Eve, that's what it was. All Father's Eve, that's right, All Father's Eve. We should celebrate that, shouldn't we? That sounds good to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> I know there's just a couple of boxes up here on the stage of which I don't know what those are doing there, but. Maybe I do, or maybe I don't, or maybe I do. All right. So, um, you know, so many of the same kind of things apply to Father's Day as they, as, as they do to Mother's Day. 
it's a hard time for people. I was talking with somebody yesterday that like Mother Father's Day isn't just an easy an easy experience for people. Sometimes it's really hard due to a lot of different things from not having had a dad, not having had a good dad, not knowing your dad, not uh, not having your dad with you still. You know, there's it can be a difficult thing, and there's no reason to pretend if it's hard that it isn't hard. It's okay. Yeah, we don't get anywhere in our lives. We don't grow. We don't really experience life if we don't deal with reality and how we actually feel and, and what's going on in us. So just know that, that you can come this Father's Day, um, this almost Father's Day, this all Father's Eve, and, and, and lay it down before God if you're frustrated. If, you're, if you feel like a father that hasn't been as good of a father as you want to be, uh, know that God's grace is with you and that He wants to equip you and empower you to be an even better dad. He, uh, he's put it in you to be a wonderful, a wonderful dad. And I know there are so many wonderful, wonderful dads here. And no, uh, no perfect dad. I think really the thing that makes a dad perfect is the admission that he's not. If there is something. Um, one of the things my dad said to me when I was a kid that will never, I'll never forget it, and that was just simply that you've never been a little boy before, and I've never been dad to a little boy before, and so in some sense we'll figure this out together. And uh, I don't know if I remember him actually saying those words or just talking about it later, uh, but nonetheless, it is so true. Um, there's so much experience in the journey of being a child and having a dad that just is part of the journey that comes with the ups and downs of successes and failures and uh, anyway so know that dads you rest in God's grace you are fearfully and wonderfully made he has equipped you to uh, to be a dad and in some cases to be a granddad how many grandfathers do we have Grandfather. <laughs> oh! <laughs> How many? <laughs> right, well, okay, gotcha. Right, a surrogate grandfather, yeah. Any great grandfather? Great great grandfather? <laughs> <laughs> What's that? <laughs> anyway, um, we do have something for you dads, but we'll get to that a little later. Um, I know, right? No, it's not going to be good if we do it before. <laughs> Let's, uh, let's pray and let's dig, dig into the word for tonight. So, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, once again, uh, let you forever be praised in our lives, in our coming, in our going, in our thoughts, in our longings, in our fears. Let you forever be praised in our trust of you, in our failing to trust you, in our faithfulness, and then in, uh, in our faithlessness. Let you forever be praised. Let us come to you knowing that you are the God that inspires us to be righteous and to be good and to do what is right. But you're also the God who, when we fail miserably at that, sometimes scoops us up, cleans us off, gives us a chance to try again. Father, let us learn to live well mercy. Let us always remember um, that it's because of, of your grace and mercy in our lives that we can breathe another breath that we can have something to eat, that we can um, have fellowship with one another. And let us always learn to embody that grace and mercy well, Lord Jesus. We love you. 
praise you. Amen. So we are in this series, and it's really interesting to be gone a bit, but uh, to have been gone a bit. i got a question for you, though. You ever overthink stuff? Okay. I was, I was going to not go on with this message if you were going to say, no, never. All right. Good. Yeah. Yeah. There's another question related to that. You ever underthink stuff? <laughs> I'm afraid sometimes, though, we do better when we underthink stuff and not overthink stuff. But what happens at times when we underthink stuff is it doesn't go the way we thought it was going to go, and then we wish we would have overthought it instead. But in reality, it was probably just better that we underthought it and didn't go like we thought it was going to go. That is thinking about thinking way too much. You're right. Darn it. Oh, I blew it, didn't I? Ah. All right. <clears throat> We're in this series called Back to Galilee, and uh, the whole idea is that uh, the Gospels are to be read more than once. In light of the resurrection, we need to return to the Gospels and read everything that Jesus taught us again, and probably again, and again, and again, but the, gospel, the, the resurrection of Jesus changes everything when it comes to how we understand what he taught. Uh, so many times the disciples are just like, hey. <laughs> we are so many times just like, hey. <laughs> and That's why we need to read it over and over and over again. But when we keep that Jesus was resurrected in mind, so much of what he has to say makes so much more sense and gives us so much more hope when he says repeatedly, I have to go die. I have to go die. What kind of talk is this, Jesus? You have to go die. Well, in order for him to be resurrected and to defeat death, he had to die. Well, yeah. In light of the resurrection, that makes a lot of sense. All right. So, we are to Matthew chapter 6, we had just finished Matthew chapter 5, the last part of which was the antitheses, the, uh, you have heard it said, but I say to you, when Jesus radically challenges some people's understanding of Torah, pretty profound stuff that Jesus did. He sets the stage for those antitheses, wanting everybody to understand that he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. He didn't come to abolish them. He came to fulfill them, to fill them up, to bring them to the sharp little point of love God, love your neighbor as yourself. We do those things, and we do well. In these antitheses and in this whole Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is preaching and speaking and teaching a ragtag bunch of people who are desperate who are lost, who are weary, who are heavy laden, who are burdened. We'll throw some more churchy words on there, right? Um, <laughs> we don't use weary and heavy laden. <laughs> you just use that like, so heavy laden. How you doing today? Heavy laden. Touche. <laughs> Touche <laughs> turtle. One of my favorites. All right. I love being here. So good. Anyway. Okay. Nonetheless, Jesus, (laughs) Jesus is speaking to that group of people that are in desperate need of help. They're crippled. They're lost. They're downtrodden, they're poor, they're poor in spirit, they're, they're in need, in great need. And so in he's speaking these words to that group of people. 
he says to them, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before people, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. That verse applies to the next three subjects Jesus teaches on. Those three subjects are referred to oftentimes as the three pillars of Jewish piety, of Jewish righteousness, of Jewish do-gooding, good-deeding. Does anybody know what those are? Prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. Prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. These are acts of righteousness. And sometimes when we hear something like an act of righteousness, it almost sounds like a derogatory term, like something negative. Oh, the guy's doing an act of righteousness. But Jesus doesn't think it's not that way, right? He doesn't undo acts of righteousness in his teaching. They're still good. He expects his people, these people that he's speaking to, to do these acts of righteousness. He just wants to give some qualifications to how they're to approach doing them. So it's not a derogatory statement at all. It's something really positive. These three acts of righteousness, these three pillars of Jewish piety, are not, it's not an exhaustive list, right? They're just the ones that are foundational, or the ones that hold everything else and give it some structure. The ones that you do these, and it's going to cover much, a lot of other territory. So really, as Jesus speaks on these three acts of righteousness, he's speaking on all acts of righteousness. Jesus says, do not do your acts of righteousness, your good deeds, your right things, to be seen. Do not do them to be seen. It speaks of what motivates us. It's a heart thing. Don't do them just for everybody else to see what you're doing. I think we probably all have done this at some point in our life. I do a lot of things to be seen, unfortunately. When I was a kid, I used to be like, Hey, Dad! Hey, Mom! Watch this! I still seem to do that as an adult on occasion. Right? So, there's a sense in which, and don't take this too far, but the kids dancing up here, as beautiful as that is, there is a sense in which they're doing it to be seen. Right? So not every last little detail of being seen and doing something is wrong. Right? But when it comes to these acts of righteousness, we must question what our motivation is. Are we only showing mercy to people because we want to be seen showing mercy? Because it kind of undoes the point of doing it. We need to be knowing, trusting, having the faith to embrace an audience of one. The un seen, seeing one. That's what our motivation in part should be. Matter of fact, there's something more essential to our motivation than that. But I would even go so far as to say that, that, that this issue of people doing things, this acts of righteousness to be seen, is a faith issue. If faith is trust, then it takes faith to know that you have an audience of one when you can't see that audience. 
You have to trust that you have a heavenly Father that does see what you're doing. And that that can be motivation for what you do. Not for a bunch of people to see what you're doing. But, again, that unseen seeing one. Do you trust that there is one who is unseen, but that sees you? We're going to talk about that more in a minute. Jesus speaks first of these acts of righteousness on the topic of almsgiving. Or, as it's translated in this translation, I'll read in a second, giving to the needy. He continues on from this command to not do things in order to be seen by men by saying, so, so, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. People actually used to do that. Announce on the street corners and in the synagogues when they were making a big, large offering to somebody. It reminds me today, and I've said this before, but of when an organization gives some charity a large sum of money and prints the check really big. Right? You've seen that before, right? Like $20,000 from so-and-so to such-and-such. You want people to see it, right? It's being done at least in part in order to be seen by people. So what about this idea of giving to the needy, or what I keep saying is almsgiving? Almsgiving is actually probably how it would be better translated, because at least it would perk our ears up to that there's something different going on than just giving to the needy. The word comes from the word eleos. And eleos means mercy or compassion. Almsgiving then is mercy and compassion expressed specifically through supplying others' necessities. It's mercy and compassion. You can't have almsgiving without mercy and compassion, or by definition, it isn't almsgiving. Because the word itself has mercy and compassion right in it. It's some other kind of giving if there's not mercy and compassion. So it's mercy and compassion tangibly expressed, specifically through supplying others' necessities, things like feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting the sick, relieving the afflicted, and quite honestly, just simply being kind and generous to all. Almsgiving for both the Jew and the Christian is not an option. It's a requirement. And it's one that's quite reasonable. To be honest with you, if you stop and think about it for a minute, God made us, and He's given us gifts. And with those gifts, He expects that we will gift others. Despite our own hard work, and hard work is a good thing, we are not self-made. 
You're not self-made. Everything you're able to amass is because of a gift God has given you. Simply in the air that you breathe, the water that you drink, the hands that you have. And everything that we have is His. There's anything that's in this world that isn't His. Everything is His. Everything that you have, everything you receive, the shirt, don't take it off, on your back is His. It's His. He made it. It's of His stuff. You're His. And everything you possess is His. God is generous, and merciful, and compassionate. These are the things that God should be known for. He makes rain fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. Our basic needs are not merited to us. God doesn't like look down and say, oh, that Dan, he's doing pretty good. I guess I'll go ahead and give him a little bit of bread today. Mm-hmm. It's grace, God's mercy that we receive whatever it is that we have. Which is really important because the flip side of that is that when somebody doesn't receive it, it's not a lack of his caring, a lack of his mercy, a lack of his intentiveness. It's not that they didn't earn it. There's something bigger going on. Something else that we're probably not going to deal with directly, but I hope you pick up on it as we go through here. It's reasonable then that we imitate God through giving to others what He has given to us. So, maybe more. Why? Why should we be mercy givers? Why should we tangibly let our mercy express itself in helping other people find their needs to be met? God requires this duty of us because contrary to some people's apparent beliefs, it is the primary means through which He provides for people. It's the primary way He provides for people that are lost, weary, destitute, broken, unable to care for themselves. That's like God's primary way to do it. He uses people. It might be hard to reason out theologically, but it's not hard to see that when someone chooses not to have mercy or not to do good, it's not done. Right? It's not hard to see that. It is hard if you're a systematic theologian to work out what that means, but it's not hard to see that when you choose not to be merciful to somebody, they don't receive mercy. When you choose not to feed somebody that's hungry, they're hungry. When you choose not to spend time with somebody who's lonely, they're lonely. God can certainly supernaturally intervene in somebody's life, but that's not his typical way of doing things. He wants to, he wants to use his people. He wants to use us. He wants to use his body, the body of Christ of which we are. What I think even strikes me is more profound is that when people, people, God so closely associates, I should say it this way, God so closely associates himself with people in need of mercy, people that need to experience compassion, that when we don't do it to them, he says we don't do it to him. That's how closely God associates himself with the poor, 
It says, when you don't do it unto those, you, don't, haven't, you haven't done it unto me. And to put it in a positive light, when we do acts of compassion and mercy to others, we've done it to him. Wow. When we alms give, when we mercy give, when we mercifully give out of what we have, it also does something profound in us. It keeps us mindful of God. We live in a land that has oftentimes an abundance of earthly possession. And unfortunately, those possessions can make us apt to forget God. We got it figured out. We're doing good. No problem. I got what I need. I got a whole stockpile of food in the freezer and a whole closet full of clothes. I'm good. Don't need God. Proverbs 38 through 9. This isn't a new problem. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? When we give, we have to be mindful of God, especially when we give to the point where we're not really positive where we're going to get our next meal or what's going to happen in our lives or if we're going to have enough clothing to wear. Giving to the point of becoming mindful of our reliance on God is a very good thing, and I know it's a very hard thing too. So giving, being merciful, reminds us that we need God. It reminds us of where our stuff comes from. We live with an illusion of control. We love control, right? I'm like a control monger. It's just it's great, you know? It's an illusion, though. I mean, we can control some things, but the reality is that a day will come sooner or later when it's really obvious that we don't have control. Those are oftentimes, too, that drive us to our knees. We wake up one day and we don't feel well. We go to the doctor and we find out we're sick. And not just kind of sick, but really sick. And all of a sudden, all control is out the window. You thought you had your life all figured out. You're going down this nice, tidy little path, and all of a sudden, boom! No control. Or you're driving down the street, and all of a sudden you get T-boned. You thought you were headed home, and you're headed to the hospital. So many things come at us that we aren't prepared for. But oftentimes, they have a very positive uh, impact on our lives. Not always, but as we surrender them to God and trust that He is the one who can make stuff out of our garbage, the one who is merciful to us, it can be a very positive experience. Sometimes being merciful to others, if we're doing it the least bit right, can dissolve that control before we have to go through a life-altering, changing experience where control is obviously out of the picture. What I mean is this. When we spend time with other people whose lives have been devastated, we can't help but open our eyes to the lack of control in our own lives. 
too many times we want to just avoid those situations, right? Like, oh my goodness, I don't want to get too close to that situation because, well, it will remind me that I'm not in control. I think it is a powerful thing to be alms givers, to be mercy givers. As a matter of fact, I don't think there can be true righteousness toward God that is not accompanied with charity toward the needy. I think I've said it more boldly and bluntly before. I'm not sure, and I'm just qualifying this a million times over. (laughs) Only God knows. I'm not sure if a church can be a church if it doesn't have compassion on the poor. I think that by definition is something other than a church. And not just like prayerful, we're going to pray at a time for the people or whatever during 30 seconds of a service or whatever. But I'm talking about what we're talking about here. Tangible outworkings of mercy that are seeking to fill the needs that people have that they can't meet themselves. I mean, my goodness, we do serve a God who came as a servant to offer himself up to do something for us that we can't do for ourselves. So I don't think there can be true righteousness toward God that is not accompanied with charity toward the needy. Or maybe as John puts it, You're a liar. (laughs) You're a liar if you say you love God who is unseen when you do not love your brother or sister who you do see. True righteousness toward God is always accompanied with charity, mercy, compassion toward others. And this mercy giving is to be offered universally To everyone, not qualified. You come halfway and I'll I'll go halfway. I'll meet you there. Just for people that I like. I don't like anything. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Especially that. There's no qualifications just universally. This mercy that God calls us to give has to be given to everybody. We cannot do it to our friends only, nor only when we are in good humor or are likely to get some good credit for it. It has to be done in the body of Christ without coercion. Without reluctance. You shouldn't have to have your arm twisted. You made a bunch of empty promises. It should be done cheerfully. And with sincerity. have to remember that in order for almsgiving to be sincere, it has to be based on mercy and compassion. As I already said, the whole idea of almsgiving is based in the idea of mercy and compassion. So for it to be sincere, it has to have mercy or compassion or it's not almsgiving. You cannot give mercy and compassion sincerely when you're doing it for your own reasons. It always 
has to have the other in mind. There seems to be a lack of almsgiving in the church. And I'm not talking about tithing, necessarily. I'm just talking about all the expressions of compassion and mercy. The tangible outworkings, just giving somebody a cup of cold water or a can of soup or a, a nice hello when they're walking down the street. There just seems to be a general lack of mercy and compassion that unfortunately has reared its head in the last week or so in light of what's happened in Orlando. The lack of compassion and mercy. People are more concerned about being right than they are about loving others. That's a lack of obedience. There seems to be a growing sense of being self-made and a shrinking sense of being conformed to Christ's likeness. It would, it would seem that the problem could simply be cured by offering acts of charity toward others then, right? Like, let's just get it together and do this thing. Yeah, that's right. No, well, maybe not. That's good. That's a really, really good start. But not necessarily will it cure all of our problems. There are some potential pitfalls when it comes to acts of righteousness like almsgiving. You know, sometimes, if you've ever been really sick and had to take medicine for whatever it was that made you sick, you, you find that sometimes the cure makes you sick. Well, this is the case. Sometimes in this situation, the cure can make us sick. It's a little different because in this case, we can watch out for it and we can be careful to have it not make us sick. But the cure for not having compassion is to go and do and have compassion and hear people's stories and get to know them and share life with them and have mercy for them. Like, that's the key. But again, this can become a problem for us if we don't orient ourselves properly to it. And this is what Jesus was addressing when he said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. People that Jesus, the people Jesus is talking to, they were being obedient to giving alms. They were doing something. Might not have been entirely merciful, but they were doing something. They're giving it. They're starting. They're trying. But in their doing it, they were missing the mark. They were missing something. First of all, it's really interesting to note that in all religious duties in the ancient Near East, acts of righteousness were performed using your right hand. In the same way that you would never strike somebody on, with, your, with your left hand, you would never shake somebody's left hand. You would also never give someone alms using your left hand. Alms giving was a right-handed action. We know why, right? It's like unclean hand. You never know what might be on that alms. When you got. Ooh, can you wash your alms for me, please? In your hands. So it was done with the right hand. So concerning that right-handed action, Jesus says, do not let your left hand know about it. Don't let your left hand know that good deed that nice, merciful thing that you've done. I think the original response would have been like, what? Jesus, what are you talking about? That doesn't make any sense. What? I mean, it's not because they were not familiar with that saying. It's because Jesus is using it in a totally unusual fashion. The expression which was commonplace before Jesus used it here, and which we still will hear sometimes today in different situations than Jesus uses it, 
is not used as a positive attribute that a person is to exhibit. Rather, it refers to the disorganization of an organization. Their left hand doesn't even know what their right hand is doing. They're so out of touch with their household, they don't even know their manager is cooking the books. That's the idea of the saying originally. It's not typically an attribute you want to have. So what in the world is Jesus doing here using it as something that we are supposed to do? Is he really saying, be so disorganized that you don't even know what you're doing? Be so out of touch with your own body that your hands don't even know what the other one has got going on? Yeah. Sort of. It's kind of close, actually. Think about it this way. When an organization's left hand knows what its right hand is doing, it is, among other things, calculating and potentially scheming. It does what it does because it is seeking a desired outcome. Certainly there are some positive things to be said about that, but not when it comes to being merciful. Being merciful is something focused purely on the other and not the self. There is no plotting, calculating, or scheming that's supposed to be done when it comes to showing mercy. It's supposed to just be done for the sake of the person who has the need of mercy to be shown to them. Or think about it this way. Maybe this is easier for some of you. It's more contemporary. Think about it like, don't let your left brain know what your right brain is up to. Because right, it's our, it's our right brain, if you're normally wired, that exhibits things like creativity and imagination and compassion and mercy and empathy. It has feelings. And it's our left brain that has things like logic and analysis and sequencing and computation. And those things are good, but they're not always very good when it comes to showing mercy and compassion. That's when we overthink things. So in a sense then, Jesus is saying, do not let your left brain know what your right brain is doing. Don't overthink it. If you see somebody that has a need and you want to fill that need, just let your right brain carry you away and go and do it. No need to scheme. No need for analysis. Just give without expectations. We start using our left brain and try and calculate an outcome. We'll miss the heart of mercy. And almsgiving becomes something altogether different. This can be hard to maintain, though. We're going to just, I'm almost done, don't worry. This can be really hard to maintain if we're just going to be realistic about it for a second. Because if anybody's done any good works, you probably had somebody notice them and probably have said something to you. And that can feel really nice. But once it happens, once somebody has seen a good deed that you've done and has offered you some thanks or praise for the good thing you've done, our left brains can start to take over. The praise of our seen audience of two, three, or four, or more can 
win out our motivation over our unseen. And honestly, oftentimes unheard audience of one. Gather Church gets a lot of praise in this community. And I do a tremendous amount of back and forth with how much of that to share with you all. Maybe I should share it more because I can't handle it sometimes. Seriously, that sounds like, I don't mean, I mean that in a negative sense. Like, you don't know what to say sometimes. Praise God. Thank you. You don't want to be insincere and be like, oh, it wasn't me, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. Like, we do participate in stuff, but we're just like the movers on of things, right? Like, you can't spend a day over in the atrium, clothing bank, or food bank, or anywhere else and think that somehow we've amassed all that stuff. It just shows up and we move it on, right? Our time, our day, it just shows up and we move it on. The air we breathe, it shows up and we, we move it on. But it can be really difficult to maintain the notion, the truth that this God who, again, is honestly oftentimes unheard, but also unseen, is seeing what we're doing and letting that be a big enough audience. It's hard. We can just name it as hard. When that starts to happen, when the audience of community offering praise becomes central, that's when the sickness, sorry, that's when the cure becomes the sickness. It becomes self-righteousness. Not acts of piety that are focused on the needs of a community, but acts of piety that are focused on self-glorification. And we have to be mindful. The solution isn't to pretend that it wasn't going to happen. Wasn't going to, isn't going to happen or couldn't happen. The reality is that it will happen if we're not mindful of knowing that it can happen at any time. And certainly, the solution is to not stop being merciful. Right? Yeah, because I mean, I think that's what some people think. Well, my goodness, since I could get puffed up in my giving mercy and showing alms and being nice to people, I should be really mean. It sounds crazy, but I'm not joking. There have been church movements that have done that. Oh, goodness, it's crazy. So the solution isn't to stop being merciful. The solution is to pay attention to one's own heart. Ask yourself what's motivating you. Ask yourself what's going on. Am I more concerned about what somebody sees or what God sees? Am I nice to my wife and kids when there are other people around? but not when they're not? Or am I, am I going to be merciful to somebody when the pastor's nearby, but my goodness, I'm going to be a total jerk when they're not? We don't have the problem here. <laughs> Everybody's willing to be a jerk in front of me. That's my point. <laughs> we need to learn empathy. We need to spend time with people in need. We need to ask God to help us to grow in trust, knowing that He does see us, that He does know what's going on in our lives. For me, it's just helpful sometimes to stop and to imagine, to picture in my own head 
Like God does see. Whatever it's like for you, I'm a visual person. I see Jesus seated high on his throne. Saying, I'm watching you. I see you. And you know where my mind usually goes straight away? Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when, and we need to focus on this a little bit more, when Jesus looks down on us and says, oh my goodness, I saw what you did last week, and that was incredible. My goodness, you pulled your car over and you actually stopped and helped somebody cross the street? That was, yeah, man, that was good. We're so sometimes inwardly focused on how God views us as like sinful and bad. What if we spend a little bit more time focused on how, how God is pleased with things that we do? How God says, yes, good and faithful servant. You nailed it. Good job. Had a girl. Had a boy. I, man, I was there last week when you were loving your newborn baby. And oh, it was beautiful. Or you got up in the middle of the night to go and help your friend that was broke down, down, whatever. That there are things that God is pleased with that we do. We need to recapture that. You need to know that. I mean, we blow it sometimes. But we need to remember that when we get it right, God is very pleased with us. He's overwhelmed with joy that we're, we're getting a little, even just a little bit. So know that. Embrace that. Hold on to that. Listen to Jesus. Try and picture Him. Try and picture your Heavenly Father. Try and picture the Holy Spirit. Well, you can't really see the Spirit because it blows wherever it's going to. Right? But anyway, maybe a dog. Picture God speaking praise to you when you do well. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank You so much that You are so gracious and good to us. I'm sorry that we blow it sometimes, but I'm sorry also that we blow it and not recognize them, that we do please You. That Your body of Christ on this earth gets it right sometimes. And that You're overjoyed as a parent is overjoyed with their child just trying something. Father, thank You that You inspire us to be dads, to be fathers. Father, I pray again for those that are here tonight that are just struggling in one way or another with Father's Day. I ask that you would draw near to them, that you would be with them, that you would be the God of all comfort. Praise you, Lord Jesus, that you came to seek us and to save us and to transform our lives and to give us hope. Thank you that you are so merciful and that you call us, Lord Jesus, to imitate you. What else would we do? We are your, your body. <laughs> you're known for your mercy and your kindness and your riches your love help us Lord Jesus help us to love well and help us to experience and to know that you're the God who is just overwhelmed with joy when we show mercy to one another let you forever be praised Jesus.